Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about free trade. It's a big topic in American discourse right now, and I have a special guest on to talk with us about it, Dan Griswold, who is a senior research fellow and co-director of the Trade and Immigration Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He is the author of the 2009 book, Mad About Trade, Why Main Street America Should Embrace Globalization. Dan and his wife are also members at Grace Presbyterian Church in Vienna, Virginia. Dan, thanks for being on with us to talk about such an important topic. Doug, I'm delighted to be with you. Now, in in terms of like currently we're recording this in the middle of 2019 and American discourse is talking a lot about immigration. We're talking a lot about trade. Everybody's talking about these kinds of things that affect, you know, how is America's relationship to people outside of America? And you'd think that for all of the boasting about how awesome capitalism is by President Trump, you'd think that he would be in favor of free trade. I don't know if there's something magical about what happens when you become president or if he's always been sort of protectionist or whatever, because, you know, politicians are going to say things that get people to, you know, vote for them. But why is it that somebody is so big on capitalism and we'll never have socialism here, you'd think they'd make arguments for free trade. So why isn't Trump kind of making that argument or why is why is this such a popular thing for by his supporters? President Trump's views on, on economics are kind of confusing, really. We could spend a lot of time analyzing where his beliefs come from. You know, you have to remember, he, he's a, a businessman and a particular kind of businessman. He grew up in the very competitive uh, New York real estate market. And that tends to be a kind of a win-lose, doesn't it? A transactional, zero-sum game. And I think he brings that to a lot of his thinking on, on trade. He can sound pretty good on some issues and not so good on others. He's appointed uh, some pretty good people in terms of overseeing uh, deregulation. He supported a a tax bill that got rates down on uh, U.S. companies so they could be more competitive globally. That's all good from a market perspective. But on trade, he he brings this uh, zero-sum mentality. That's actually one of the few issues where he's been very consistent over, oh, 30 years of of, uh, public pronouncements. If you go back to the late 1980s, he was saying a lot of things about Japan that he says about China today, right? We've got a big trade deficit. They're competing unfairly. We need tariffs. So he's, he's been consistently protectionist, I would say. He'll, he'll occasionally say something good about free trade, but then there'll be a dozen comments about him liking tariffs and uh, we're getting uh, taken advantage of by other countries and uh, trade agreements are bad. So he's got a big, I'd say a big blind spot when it comes to appreciating the benefits of free trade to the United States and, and people around the world. Do you think that the the zero sum mentality is just something that just comes naturally for politicians because they are kind of mired in this. Well, it's me or this other candidate. And 
it's just the way they talk or is this just sort of a mentality that just seems to be human nature where we think things, you know, despite evidence to the contrary for the last couple hundred years that the world is zero sum? Yeah. No, that's a good point. I think politicians uh, may be more prone to see that than other people. There's a few things going on, aren't aren't there? I think we get hung up on the balance of trade, and we're sort of taught that deficits are, are bad and surpluses are good, whereas in trade, if we're importing more than we export in goods, it just means that there's more capital flowing into the country, right? We're Foreigners are buying our assets rather than just our our goods. And so politicians get hung up on that. And then, of course, there's the political equation, and that is industries that benefit from protection. Take the steel industry, the sugar industry. They're concentrated, aren't they? They're organized. They have a lot to gain from having the government erect trade barriers, where the cost of that protection while it, it outweighs the benefits for the nation as a whole, they're diffused. They're spread out over you know, 120 million households that pay, pay more for a washing machine or a car because of steel prices or more for sugar. And they're much harder to organize and they aren't aware of it. So the protectionist interests will always find it easier to get the attention of politicians. So Advocating for free trade, while intellectually, I think we pretty much won the argument with Adam Smith and Frederick Bastiat and Milton Friedman. Politically, it's always been an uphill uh, fight. And unfortunately, uh, our current president is is making it even more difficult. Are you seeing that people that are Trump's opponents becoming more free trade than they sounded years ago? It's an interesting dynamic, yes. Um, You know, uh, polls show Gallup has been asking people about their attitude towards trade for a few decades, and it's the same basic question. Uh, The public attitudes toward free trade are the most positive they've been in years. The composition has changed somewhat. Some of our Democratic friends are, are waking up to their traditional support for free trade, going back to Roosevelt and Kennedy and Clinton. Some of our Republican friends who say they support free markets and limited government are now becoming more interested in tariffs because their leader in the White House supports tariffs. So the politics of it have become more complicated. But I think what's driving the protectionism we see in Washington is not a populist revolt against free trade. It's really really the ideas that this particular president has brought to the White House. Well, in an alternate universe, Bernie Sanders could be in the White House. And do you think things would have been a little differently? Well, that, you know, on the subject of trade, he and Trump sound pretty similar, don't they? They oppose the same trade agreements. They make a lot of the same arguments about free trade uh, being bad for working people, even though it's not. It's good for the large majority of, of people. And while I fault Republicans for not supporting free trade because they they should support free markets and economic freedom, my faulting of people on the left like Bernie Sanders is they miss they miss the great benefits that free trade has brought to poor people here in the United States and abroad. You know, just quickly, tariffs are the most regressive tax that the federal government imposes. They fall uh, the hardest on poor people because they spend a higher share of their income on tradable goods. Uh, and we have our highest tariffs on things that are most important to the poor, clothing, shoes, food. And so 
That's one reason why people on the left should support free trade. The other is, and this is a great story that unfortunately you don't hear in the news, you don't see in the newspaper, uh, but the lot of the poor around the world has improved dramatically over the last 30 years. You know, Doug, if you go back to 1990, compared to today, there are about 1.2 billion fewer people in the world living in absolute poverty than there was uh, 30 years ago. The share of the world's population living in absolute poverty has plunged from something like, during that same time, something like 30% to 10%. And it isn't because of foreign aid, it isn't because of imposing enforceable labor standards on poor countries or income (laughs) redistribution. It's because of the spread of global capitalism. Emerging markets like China and India and Latin America and even now Sub-Saharan Africa have gotten plugged into global markets. They've been able to sell stuff to rich countries. Foreign investment has come in and it's created better paying jobs that has literally lifted more than a billion people out of poverty. That's something you don't see Bernie Sanders and our other friends on the left talk about. And they should be glad about it. And of course, Christians and other people who have a special heart for the poor should be very encouraged by this. Yeah, I think the, pe- the the arguments on the left, you know, I have a I have a friend who is a kind of a solid Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren kind of leftist Christian and he often, you know, when we talk about free trade, he kind of acknowledges what you just acknowledged, but his concern is that we have these big corporations going overseas not because they're taking necessarily taking away the the work from either poor or middle class Americans, but mostly because they're exploiting the labor of the poor. And there's this, he calls it a race to the bottom. You know, if we don't have some sort of restrictions in some ways, then what'll happen is we have a race to the bottom. And I've always, at first I thought, oh, well, that, that might be an interesting problem. Then on the other hand, I thought, well, wait a second, the bottom are the people that need the jobs. Yeah. Um, So I don't know, what is your take on, on that sort of criticism? I'm sure you've heard that before. Yeah, the phrase, the race to the bottom has been around a, a long time. I've written studies about it, and uh, I, I address it somewhat in my book, uh, Mad About Trade. It, Doug, it's a myth. Uh, it's, it's one of those phrases that gets tossed around, but when you look at it, uh, if anything, we've seen a race towards the top. You know, if you, go, if you look at the poor countries that are the most plugged into the global economy, those developing, emerging economies that have opened themselves up to foreign investment, that have reduced their own trade barriers the most, signed trade agreements with other countries. That's where the most progress has occurred in combating poverty. So how could it be erased? How how could there be a race to the bottom when 1.2 billion fewer people are living in poverty than were 30 years ago? It's certainly been a race upward for them. Yeah. Uh, and, and a growth of the global middle class. And another dynamic that goes on, you know, we like to lecture poor countries about their labor and environmental standards. But in an economic sense, those are, those are luxury goods. And by that, I mean, if a large part of your population is on the verge of starvation, their number one priority isn't climate change. It's earning a living. And the dynamic is as as countries, as emerging countries move up the income scale and they develop a larger middle class, they have the resources to curb pollution and to put scrubbers on their power plants and to drive more economical cars. And so 
as incomes rise in the emerging economies, their standards rise and their workers want more time off and things like that. And that's what you see. So that if you care about working conditions in poor countries, the worst thing you can do is raise trade barriers to their goods. That's going to put them out of work and move them backwards. The best thing we can do is trade with them and allow foreign investment. And that lifts their living standards. And by the way, they become better customers for U.S. goods because they can afford to buy more. So that, in that sense, it's, it's a win-win. Trade is a, is a win-win that is good economics. And I would argue is it also just makes a better world. Yeah, well, I obviously agree with you. I mean, that's why I'm having you on. I think it's important to describe and help people understand the dynamics of a global market and how it helps the poor, how it helps not those who aren't necessarily poor or are middle class. I think it might be helpful to start and just kind of like, what is what is your way of describing or defining globalization? Uh, that word has become kind of very, I feel like it's a slippery slope it's being defined and it's like slowly degrading in its yeah. meaning and connotation, but it, it really shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. And uh, admittedly, it's not a real pretty word. Um, but by globalization, to me, it means the expanding freedom of people to engage in commerce across borders, trade in goods and services, as well as the movement of investment travel. Uh, I think it includes migration as well, which is another important uh, mm -hmm. economic issue, not only for us here, but for people in, in developing countries. And Doug, I think a per, an important point to make is globalization is really kind of the default of mankind. You know, if government stays out of the way, it's what people do. Globalization is what happens when the government gets out of the way and just lets people do business with, with one another. It's what Adam Smith called the, the natural system of liberty. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm a proponent of globalization. Call it whatever you want. I, I call it economic freedom. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think your point is that the government makes it so that me trading with, you know, Juan from Mexico has turned into Americans trading with Mexicans. And so it kind of puts a in, it kind of puts an anti-individual barrier yeah. that then we yeah. don't treat people as human. We treat them as mere traders or mere not traders like against us, but like people to trade with. And so, yeah, it <laughs> it just seems to me it's like it's just more freedom and I mean, do you do you think that America is an example of sort of a free trade zone, you know, the last, what, 240 odd years? That's a good point. And I think that that is a way of helping people understand the benefits of trade, right? Our, our constitution basically created a free trade zone within the United States so that, and, and when we had the Articles of the Confederacy, each state in effect had its own trade policy and you had uh, tariffs, internal tariffs, and we saw how inefficient that was. Well, you know, the laws of economics don't change when you when you go outside our national uh, borders. And so the fact that the 50 states are more prosperous because they can trade freely with one another really translates directly into, you know, the 200 countries in the world are more prosperous when they can trade with each other. And Americans are more prosperous. And I would argue, you know, we we had a protectionist past really up until the 1930s. I would argue, and I think the historical analysis bears this out, that uh, we prospered as a nation despite the tariffs, not because of them. 
Uh, you go back to the late 1800s when we had robust growth in this country. We also had uh, uh, large-scale immigration from Europe. Uh, we had uh, openness to capital coming in, and we ran trade deficits a lot of those years. So the protectionists can't look back at that period and say it was because of their kind of trade policies that, that grew. So, And then after World War II, we turned away from protectionism engaged with other countries. I think that's been good for us economically. Another important point, Doug, is that uh, trade's been part of our foreign policy uh, since then with the belief, and I think, again, history has borne this out, that nations that trade with one another tend to have better relations all around. They're less likely to fight wars with each other. They're more likely to cooperate on a range of issues. You know, we had two devastating world wars centered in Europe uh, Western Europe uh, in the first half of the 20th century. The fact that uh, the Western European economies are deeply integrated uh, uh, with the, each other as well as with the United States and Canada and Japan has made another world war in Western Europe unthinkable. Uh, Japan is now one of our, our best friends in the world. So the movement to freer trade has been good for Americans economically. It's been good for us in terms of our place in the world, and I would hate to see that uh, rolled back against all the lessons of economics and history. Yeah, I'm with you there. The, the something that you talk about in one of your articles when I was looking up some of your views and and information on this for this episode is that the church has benefited from an expanding freedom and global economy. And so that's not something that we talk about in American discourse, of course, but no. as Christians, we we do want to consider the moral arguments, which we're going to get to here in a little bit, uh, the moral arguments in terms of free trade. But I think that might help in establishing some fundamental principles in how has it been friendly to the church and how has the church benefited? Yeah, well, uh, in in a couple of big ways. Uh, one, I think around the world, uh, countries that are more open to trade and commerce and travel tend to be freer all around, don't they? You know, uh, freedoms are somewhat tied up together. So if people have the freedom to travel, to exchange their money for foreign currency and buy things from abroad, to communicate freely with people, they'll tend to have other freedoms as well, including the freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of worship. That's one. The other one is it opens channels for communications with people in other countries. You know, China is an example. And China is a, a complex society. They have a long history. They do have a one-party authoritarian government that's looking uglier, <laughs> looking uglier by the day uh, the, these days. But over the broad sweep, you know, the last 30 or 40 years, there has been an opening in China, and uh, I know our church and a lot of other churches have missionaries and tent makers in China. That's been facilitated in great deal by expanding trade and travel. And the fact that China has opened up economically, maybe unintentionally for its leaders, it's also opened it up to ideas, to religious influence. The church in China today is uh, thriving in a way that was impossible under the closed system of Mao. And, you know, the point I made a moment ago about trade and peace, don't misinterpret me as overpromising. I'm not saying that free trade guarantees peace. I'm not saying it guarantees these broader liberties, but it does promote them. 
it creates a more favorable environment. I'll, I'll just give another historical example, Doug. You know, I, uh, no, nothing is a coincidence in God's providence. I think uh, Christ came into the world during the Roman Empire for a reason. The gospel was able to spread throughout the empire much more easily than if the world had been fragmented mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, you know, the Roman roads, the sea routes on the Mediterranean, the fact that they had a common language, uh, Latin or, or Greek in a lot of cases among the more educated, actually encouraged the spread of the gospel. And I think today our more globalized world has opened up avenues for Christians to share the gospel in a way they wouldn't have uh, otherwise. You know, just to sum it up, uh, economic isolation can mean spiritual and social isolation and, and vice versa. Economic openness uh, can open a society to more social interaction, more spiritual diversity. Do you think I, I don't often like to think in terms of, you know, moral obligations to, you know, you, we could include a lot of things in that list if we wanted to be like, uh, <laughs> here's what everybody who is a Christian should believe. But there's there's yeah. a sense in which if, if you're thinking just solely in the sphere of political economy, that Christians almost have a moral obligation to be in favor of free trade. And it may be, maybe that's a strong way of putting it, but even if it, whether we do or we don't, we need to advocate for it to some extent. And how do we do that responsibly? Yeah, I'd, uh, I, I would tread a little carefully in that area. You know, um, some people call it the two kingdoms. You want to make sure that our Christian beliefs don't dictate a, a broad range of political beliefs uh, and, and vice versa. You know, we do have the moral law, and I think there are some issues where our Christian faith really does clearly inform what we should stand up for, right? Human rights and things like that, and protection against human trafficking and all that sort of thing, uh, where we have a moral obligation to stand up. Trade, I I think for all the reasons we've talked about and we'll talk about, I think uh, at the very least, support of free trade is very compatible with the Christian message. I would just say to your listeners, at the very least, let anybody make you think that as a Christian, you need to stand up for protecting our domestic market. I don't think that is uh, in any way what the Bible teaches. But I think it is uh, broadly supportive of our, our Christian Christian values. And also another point, I think as Christians, we should not only be well morally grounded, but be be plugged into worldly realities, to be to be worldly wise in the sense that good intentions alone aren't enough. We can say, oh, I want to help the poor and and all that. But if you're advocating policies that are literally keeping people poor, uh, then then that's a problem. I mean, ask yourself, what what has lifted those 1.2 billion people out of poverty? And I, there's a few things going on, you know, the advance of medical technology, and there's a lot of good things going on. But trade and globalization have been a major engine of lifting a huge part of mankind out of absolute poverty. And as Christians, we, we can't be indifferent to that. And if, and if we're not supporting the policies that are doing so much good in poor countries, we're, we're part of the problem and not part of the solution. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, 
Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com. What about the idea that if we are to love our neighbor as ourself, you know, the the neighbor most immediate to us would be our fellow citizens yeah. or, you know, you could have a politician say in I don't know, Philadelphia running for senator of, of Pennsylvania saying, you know what, you know, the, this free trade policy has shipped the jobs overseas. And there's a, you know, a lot of people in Philadelphia who are now jobless over the last five years because of his opponent's policies. And like he could say, but, and I'm just, you know, looking after my neighbor because I believe I'm my brother's keeper and yeah. he can, can all these platitudes. What are, what are some sort of responses you have might, might have for that? Yeah. Well, first, while, Steel imports may hurt some of our neighbors who work at the steel mill. They also benefit a lot of our other neighbors who work at an auto factory that buys a lot of steel, or virtually all our neighbors who buy things made of steel. So protectionism isn't about favoring Americans versus people in other countries. It's about using the force of the state to benefit a fairly small number of Americans at the expense of the broad mass of Americans, and ultimately to leave our nation somewhat poorer because we have these trade barriers. So right there, that's a distinction I draw. Secondly, I mean, think of the story of the Good Samaritan. Who is our neighbor? I mean, the, the very point of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritans were the other guys, <laughs> right? They were yeah. the despised Northerners. The whole point of that, of, of Christ's parable of the Good Samaritan, is it wasn't his neighbor, the Levite, that came to the aid of the traveler that got fell into the hands of the robbers. It was the, it was the alien. And so the point being, and really, I'll, I'll go cosmic here on you. I mean, Christianity is a universal religion. Christianity is not about, there isn't American Christianity that has to be set off against African and Asian mm-hmm, Christianity. Mm-hmm. Christianity is a universal religion. Uh, I think it's in Galatians, isn't it? There is no Greek or Jew, male or female. We're all one in, in Christ. It's a, it's a universal religion. So in that sense, yes, I'm, I'm all for patriotism. I put my flag out on, on the 4th of July. I love America, and I thank God every day I live in a free country like this. But I think as Christians, we have to think about, one, the benefit of most Americans as opposed to a small politically connected group. But also we have to think about our, our place in the world. And that's why I feel so good about advocating for free trade. To me, it's a, it's a pro-human uh, policy that uh, lifts the, the, the large majority of people to a better state of, of living. Yeah. I like what Richard Beck says about that story of the Good Samaritan is that the the answer to the question after the story, you know, which one was a neighbor to him, the guy couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. What he said was the guy who had pity on him. It was sort of a revealing thing that he couldn't even name the guy. It's yeah. like, it's oh, it's one of those people, you know, begrud- yeah. begrudgingly, right? So, yeah. Um, so I, I have one more like here. What do you say to this kind of question for you? And then we can get into some uh, specific moral arguments that you talk about in your book. What about the threat of heterogeneity? Some people think that if we have a lot of people who either won't assimilate or if they do assimilate too much, they'll you know, we there won't be such a thing as Americans or something like that. 
Yeah, that 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 is a, a puzzling argument to me, especially if it comes from Christians. And I hear some of them making that that argument. One, just what we talked about about the universality of of Christianity. You know, some somebody pointed. I think I was reading a commentary on the Book of Ruth, and and there the main character is a is a Moabite, right? She she was outside the community and came in, and because she loved the Lord, she was part of part of the family. I, I just don't understand this argument that we are strengthened as a nation if we all have uh, one homogenous ethnicity. I think we, uh, our strength as an, one of our many strengths as a nation is, and here we're getting into immigration, that we have been open to people from around the world who came here who loved the idea of America and wanted to embrace the freedom uh, that we offer here. You know, there there have been some studies on on profiling uh, immigrants who come into the United States. And yes, they're coming from all over. Now, we've actually reached the point, Doug, where the majority of immigrants are now coming from Asia and not Latin America. So the face of immigration has changed, but there's some common threads, right? You know, you talk about the bourgeois virtues, the, those American virtues of hard work, immigrants, have a higher propensity to work. They have a high work ethic. They believe in the American dream. Three quarters of immigrants to the United States identify with the Christian religion. They're more likely than natives to attend church and raise kids in a two-parent family. So I think we should we should welcome, yes, the racial and ethnic diversity that immigrants bring, but the fact that they remind us uh, of, I think, core American values, and they appreciate perhaps as much as natives, sometimes more, what opportunity America has mm. has to offer. Yeah. To speak nothing of the fact that it's an American value to be welcoming to those who are strangers. <laughs> yes. Even though we practiced it imperfectly over the years. Yeah, yeah. So you have an article on Cato.org called Seven Moral Arguments for Free Trade. I want to talk about three of them. The article, I believe, other than the reference to the Bush administration in the the first paragraph, the argument, I mean, it stands up really well almost 20 years later because these are just just standard principles that, you know, you espouse and we can apply those today. I mean, there's probably very, very little you would want to change on that. And so I, I just want to kind of get some elaboration from you on on just a couple here. Yeah. Uh, so n- the third one is that it encourages individuals to cultivate moral virtues. Can you explain what you mean by why does free trade do that? Yes. And and Doug, I think you could say this for the free market generally. And of course, we, we believe in free markets under law, right? The mm-hmm. uh, laws against fraud and you, you've – and the whole idea of the free market is if, if you want to make a living, you have to – offer something that is of value to other people. You need to please other people through your service or the goods you offer. You know, Adam Smith talked about it, the baker, the butcher. They don't do it out of some altruism. They do it uh, to benefit their own family, but they offer goods for, for other people. And the free market generally and free trade in particular encourage certain virtues. You might call them the bourgeois virtues, right? Thrift, industry, savings, dependability, trustworthiness uh, with with others. There's a, a, a key document that I think uh, people should be familiar with. Uh, Pope John Paul II uh, issued an encyclical, I think it was called Centissimus Annus in 1991. And it was his analysis of 
globalization. And uh, he talked about, one, he described it as uh, people working with each other, sharing in a community of work, which embraces ever-widening circles. That that was a pretty good definition of globalization, Mm -hmm. a community of work. But the Pope also talked about these virtues, that the market can cultivate certain virtues in, in people. You know, you certainly see the the opposite, don't you, in collectivist societies where people have to learn to survive, to game the system. Uh, could could you say that the kind of socialism we see in Venezuela is teaching personal virtues? Uh, if anything, you see a breakdown in morality. So to me, that's one more reason to support uh, the expansion of free trade and, and free markets. It also uh, makes people more tolerant. You know, instead of somebody just being uh, a foreigner, you start to see them as a customer. <laughs> and and you and if you want your customer to come back, you better treat them well. Mm. Uh, they may be a business partner, somebody you invest with over in that country. So we see that 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 you gain wealth by serving others, not by gaming the system or gaining special favor from the state at the expense of fellow citizens. Well, and along those lines, you know, your fifth point, free trade encourages other basic human rights, um, things like freedom of speech and freedom of religion. That in some ways might take a little explanation um, because we're now we're dealing with commerce. How is that related to speech and maybe even religion? Yes. And yeah, we, we, we touched on this a moment ago, but I first, I'd be careful not to draw kind of absolute linear connections. Mm. I am not saying that a country that reduces its tariffs by 50% will see an immediate increase in religious liberty. Uh, the world's a, a mess, messier place than that. It's not quite that straightforward. <laughs> Co- correct. I, I sometimes wish it was. But uh, what I am saying is that in the, in the broad sweep of human history and when you look at the nations around the world today – there is a correlation, not perfect, but there's a correlation between economic freedom and openness to the global economy and these other freedoms that we hold dear, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association. For example, uh, you know, South Korea and Taiwan were government dictatorships 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, they had, while they were moving towards a market, they had a lot of government intervention. They become a lot freer and more open economically. And you've seen in both of them a flowering of pluralistic democracy and other freedoms. And you see that in, in lots of other uh, countries. You, you look back historically, um, you know, think of Venice in the 1200s, the Dutch Republic in the 1600s. These were nations that uh, embraced global trade. And also, relative to other countries in the world at the time, they were tolerant, right? Where did the pilgrims go and, and, and the Jews go in Europe? They went to the Dutch Republic because they were more open. By the way, they were very also a very religious society as well, uh, largely Calvinist. And so you see that connection. So I just argue that it's one of the many benefits of trade. We, we realize the economic benefits but they also create the conditions 
where other freedoms are more likely to flourish. Government has less control of people's daily lives in terms of their trade, their travel, their communications. Trade helps form a larger middle class, uh, which tends to be more educated, more protective of, of their rights and, and their expectations of uh, autonomy. So to me, that's even if you're not totally convinced by the economic arguments, I think that that is a strong moral argument yeah. uh, for free trade. Yeah. Well, the moral argument that's kind of always in front of my mind is war. <laughs> you know, yeah. As libertarians, I mean, I think there's a space for advocating a case for when can a country go to war, but that's extremely rare. Um, and so we, we've actually talked about this in this discussion already, but it was <laughs> kind of got jumped ahead of ourselves. But one of the points that you make is that free trade fosters peace by raising the cost of war. Yeah. And I know we, you know, we briefly touched on it, but if there's anything else you want to want to say on that, how does it raise the cost? Yes. Uh, and, and, and thinkers have actually, uh, Immanuel Kant wrote an essay about perpetual peace, and he talked about this. Uh, Richard Cobden, the great uh, British statesman of the middle 1800s, talked about trade as a uh, encouraging peace among nations. Yeah, and, and I would say, and again, it doesn't guarantee peace, but it raises the cost of war. Why? Because if you go to war with countries that you have deep trading relations with, you not only lose you know, all the expense of going to war and all the blood, but you suffer a lot of economic damage uh, as, as well. You lose markets, you lose uh, in investment. And so it, 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 it raises the cost. And also trade uh, lowers the spoils of war. You know, uh, if you want, if you need oil and food, you don't have to go out and seize the oil fields and the farmland. You can just trade for it, <laughs> make cars and sell them and import the oil uh, or, hmm. or, or, or the food. And here, Doug, we do have some historical lessons as well. You know, the 1930s, a lot was going on in the 1930s and the rise of fascism. But there were a lot of economic tensions back then as well, right? Global depression, trade barriers going up. We had a global trade war back then. That, that exacerbated those tensions. And when we came out of World War II, we learned some lessons from that, didn't we? Uh, our nation turned away from protectionism and embraced free trade, one, because it made economic sense, but also it helped to knit the Western alliances together as we stood up against communism. And as I mentioned a moment ago, it's, it's really made war among the Western powers uh, un, unthinkable. So it may not seem like it when you look at the front page, but the world's actually more peaceful today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. There are, there are fewer wars between countries. Fewer people are dying in wars. And there's, there's reasons behind that multiple reasons, but I would say one important reason behind that is the spread of globalization, trade, of foreign investment. That is, war is almost never the smart option, right? It's the last option you should have, but it's made war an even dumber option in our more globalized world. Yeah, it sure has. So this episode is going to air a couple of weeks ahead of 4th of July. 
and I can imagine that I'm going to be around the the grill or just eating what's come <laughs> off the grill. And I'm going to be hearing some of my family members gloat about how pro-America Trump is and how he's helping, you know, helping people keep their jobs. And, they're you know, they're going to be <laughs> they're going to be all in on this. And some of them are not going to be that way. And I'm sure the wisest thing for me to do is not say anything. But if for some reason I'm dragged into this conversation or <laughs> any of our listeners are dragged into similar conversations, what what <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> Maybe you're going to be involved in this too, but yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I guess if if trade comes up over the Fourth of July picnic, I would one. I would, you know, sometimes we can be on our strongest footing when we're critiquing and attacking the alternative to free trade, which is protectionism. And I would just say America is paying a high cost for the president's protectionism. Uh, it is driving up prices for tens of millions of American consumers, making the goods they buy every day from cars to appliances to food more expensive, and that pulls down real wages, and it especially hurts the poor. What's what's American about that? It disrupts supply chains so that U.S. companies are less competitive uh, globally. Every, every company that uses steel, there's 6 million Americans that work in steel using industries, only about 140,000 in steel making uh, industries. What's patriotic about, you know, putting 6 million jobs at risk to make 140,000 workers uh, better off. Uh, and then I would point out the foreign policy benefits. We, we've had more than 70 years of bipartisan commitment to freer trade, you know, from General Eisenhower to Jack Kennedy to Ronald Reagan to George W. Bush, uh, they have supported free trade, not just because it makes economic sense, but because it increases American influence in the world. It deepens our alliances. You know, we just commemorated 75 years since D-Day. Every one of those nations that uh, sent troops onto the beaches at Normandy are now deeply integrated in trade. They supported the post-war trading system. Uh, this is a gift that the greatest generation has given us, this post-war integrated global economy that has lifted living standards here in America and served our place in the world. We would not only be foolish, but I would argue not fully patriotic. We wouldn't, we'd be misunderstanding what patriotism means if we turned our back on that wonderful legacy of uh, freedom that we were given after World War II. I don't think there's anything to follow up with. That was a great answer, man. <laughs> that is uh that is that is very sage advice, and I think that actually might work on a few a few of my family members. So I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> great, and it's a bipartisan message. Yeah, you yeah. Know, you can, there there have been some great uh, Democrats over the years that have had that vision of a more integrated. I mean, it really really was the Democrats that led us away from the protectionist wilderness in the 1930s. Cordell Hull and uh, Harry Truman, and then. Then it became bipartisan. Republicans woke up and said, you know, we need to embrace free trade as, uh, among other things, as a bulwark against communism. Uh, and so it's a it's a rich heritage that uh, we, we should embrace. 
Yeah, well, I I assume that you keep making these arguments uh, for free trade. And so our listeners are going to want to know how can they find you online. Yeah. And so I'll let you do that and we'll, we'll let wrap up. Uh, yeah, there's three ways that uh, people can either get in touch with me or keep track of what we do. Uh, one, we have a great website, mercatus.org, M-E-R-C-A-T-U-S. That's Latin for market, mercatus.org. People can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Griswold. And I would welcome people emailing me, dgriswold at mercatus.gmu for George Mason University, gmu.edu. Excellent. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being with us and making the case uh, for free trade, some moral arguments, and kind of elaborating on things I think we all, we all need to know. Well, Doug, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.